Headwaters is brought to you by the Glacier National Park Conservancy. Can you grab my wallet too, just in case I need the ID? Yeah. You will need the ID. Tom Hanks is gonna greet us like Polar Express style. <gasps> there it is, Michael! Oh my God, it's coming quickly. We are waiting to board the Amtrak. It just pulled in Empire Builder uh, at Belton. You guys are good to go. Great. Alrighty, thank you so much. You bet. It's a beautiful morning when Michael and I finally decide it's time to ride the train. Michael is more interested in the experience, but if I'm being honest, I'm here for the destination. There is no saving seats. Please make room for everyone who would like one, to get a seat in the lounge car. Let's see. Everyone would like to see this beautiful view with all the space. Somewhere? Thank you. I'll hang out. Okay, we made it to the lounge car. We did. This is cool. There's more windows here. It's yeah, like got skylights, wraparound windows. Are we are we train people? I now? think I'm a train person now. We're riding rails that were once run by the Great Northern Railway, but today we're on the Amtrak. That was really quick. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was picturing like a plane where you're sitting on the runway for 45 minutes. Totally. But it was so smooth. I didn't actually feel it. I just saw the trains yeah, go no. by. Yeah. No. Yeah. Genuinely. It is so beautiful. The nice thing about riding the train this early in the morning is that you have beautiful views of that morning light. We are right along the river. Yeah. JJ and Louis Hill are revered here, the father and son duo who made Glacier the destination we know today. But while JJ Hill cared about express shipping, Louis saw the potential of tourism. For 40 years, this was the only way to get through this canyon, mm-hmm. really. James J. Hill rode on this line. Thousands of laborers toiled away to lay the tracks that paved the way for this. To be on it is kind of powerful. I can see how the train really opened up Glacier to the world. Me too. This train runs along the southern boundary of the park. These tracks have been here for well over a hundred years, and their placement set both freight and tourists in motion. I feel like what we're experiencing is not necessarily J.J. Hill's vision. So I think what we're actually experiencing is a little bit more of Louis Hill's vision, his son. Mm -hmm. JJ saw passenger travel as a waste of space. Louis saw an opportunity. Yeah. We'll be disembarking at the Glacier Park Lodge. That is where this history starts. Hopefully you'll be arriving at East Glacier here in the next 20 minutes. If it is your final destination, now's a great time to return to your seats and collect your belongings. Okay, we got to say goodbye to the lounge car. Go back to our seats. In the decades just after the park was established, the train was the primary way to get here. When visitors disembarked at the Glacier Park Lodge, they were greeted by Blackfeet people in full regalia, paid by the railway to sing and dance, and to promote Glacier as a place to see the, quote, vanishing Indians, unquote. This is season three of Headwaters, and it's called Becoming. It's a collection of histories about how Glacier National Park came into being.
They say history repeats itself, the same old stories again and again. One of those stories is people doing just about anything for another ounce of power or wealth. But just when you think history is making another spin back around, you notice something different, that just because something started as a scheme to get rich doesn't mean it stayed that way. This is one of those stories. This episode is about the economic forces that pushed Glacier National Park into existence. But it is also about the people who got rolled up in that history and found a way to make it their own. After walking this exhibit, what kind of moves through you? How do you feel? A feeling of, uh, I guess, some, some more pride, dignity, but the, the closeness that I felt, all those people that are gone, I start thinking of them, my grandmothers and my mother, and um, how that, that whole era is, um, it is a piece of history now. And when I was younger, I always thought, you know, time was so, so forever. Now it's short. I'm touring the Museum of the Plains Indian with the curator, Renee Bear Medicine. My name is Renee Bear Medicine. I am the current curator for the Museum of the Plains Indian. It's been an awesome experience. It's an honor to have one of our own be the curator. It's an honor for us to be able to write our own history and have our own stories told the way that, that we know them. Darnell rides at the door, is with us too telling me about her family's connection to this exhibit. Okay, okay, Nusti I am Darnell Rides at the door. My native name or Indian name is Nitukimi, which means lone camper, given to me by my great-grandfather, John Eagle Calf Ground. He and my grandmother and my family have been closely associated with the, uh, the series, the Winnold Reese series. In this episode, you'll hear people say both Vinold Rice and Winold Reese. That's the same person. Some say Winold Reese, but the Indians just call him Winnell. There was no D on there, just Winnell. Darnell takes out a small piece of paper. It's a copy of a painting of two young girls. She holds it in a way that feels like she's caressing it. Her eyes never leaving theirs. That's them when they, they were uh, painted by Winold Reese. And no, they got they six silver dollars for sitting there. Wow. She told the story. My and sister how, wrote it up. How old were they? Well, my mother was born in 35, and her sister was born in 34, so they must have been six and seven, maybe. Is that your mama? Um, and Eileen? Yeah. 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 So yeah. those are the things that, that we hold dear, and I, I think that this connections is a great, great Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. That was really special. I feel like they shared a lot with us. Do we want to pretend like we're arriving? Oh, yeah. Because someone forgot to hit record when we were on our way. <laughs> we're stuck in traffic because of construction on Highway 2. I think we're gonna get to the museum soon. In fact, I see Browning coming into view. I'm holding a pamphlet that Renee gave me and it describes the exhibit. So this exhibit is called Connections, the Blackfeet and Vinold Rice. It's a series of portraits. 
and they were created for the Great Northern Railway. The exhibit includes both Rice's pastel portraits and personal items that belong to the people he portrayed. An intricately beaded purse sits next to the painting of the woman who made it. A police uniform hangs beside the person who wore it. The portraits themselves are incredible, but these objects add another dimension to these people. I really like this sentence. These portraits connect us with Blackfeet individuals who grappled with the imposition of the tourism industry. The imposition of the tourism industry. It's powerful. Your last question, too, like got some of the best tape of the whole day. Like, would you want to be, uh, would you get your portrait done? Yeah. Darnell had an amazing outfit on. Yeah. Well, she looked like a straight up queen. I'm interviewing Bill Schustrom, one of Glacier's longest tenured rangers. I want to know how the Great Northern Railway helped push for the creation of Glacier National Park. I just love working with the people I work with. I, Michael came in there as this young kid, and Aww. yeah, and I watched him grow up and Aww. watched a few watched a few romances come and go. And I had to do Bill, a lot. Did of, you ever like set people up? Oh my God! Me? He's the office matchmaker. Are you sparking with anybody? Are you sparking with this one? Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, are you sparking yet? Yeah. <laughs> All right, this isn't the point. <laughs> I'm Ranger Bill, Ranger Bill Schustrom. Been around the park for many, many years. Very interested in the going to the Sun Road and obviously the Great Northern Railway mm. and its impact on Glacier National Park, especially during its early years. So Bill is the kind of park ranger that gives evening programs or afternoon walks Someone that's happy to answer any question. And he loves trains. So he's been talking about the Great Northern at Glacier for a long time. Now, the big thing was that James J. Hill was interested in profit. He was really trying to promote bringing people out to Homestead. And then along came Louis. But Louis Hill was the, you know, he was a hardcore businessman, but he was also a romantic Louis was a bit of a dreamer. He wanted to live the glacier lifestyle that for him was riding horses and camping in cool temperatures and then jumping into lakes, nude. True story. How is he different from his dad? Louis, he wasn't. He was the one that was closest to, he paralleled his dad in their line of thinking and everything, except when it came to Glacier Park. So then Glacier was kind of this thing between them where they disagreed on their approach on how to, I suppose, make money here. Well, James J. wasn't interested. In, he, he said, why do we put a lot of money into a bunch of mountains when we could be making money bringing crops and things and cattle and stuff like that back east, which is going to give us a really great net profit of money. He was in it for the money. He was a money man. Now, Louis was too. He lobbied for this to become a national park. That was one of his goals. So Louis didn't really invent this idea of kind of profiting through national parks and railroads because he kind of saw this happening in Yellowstone. Louis immediately said, well, railroad goes right along the southern boundary of these incredible mountains. And so why can't we do that up here? Northern Pacific Railroad paid for a lot of Yellowstone's infrastructure to invite tourism. And Louis Hill wanted to do that here. So he started pushing for Glacier to become a national park. Okay. He didn't want to get in trouble with the federal government. 
Why? He, because he felt that they would say, all you want is to make money from the mountains. Which and so, is not wrong. <laughs> so, so that's exactly that's exactly right. So, but the thing that he did do was encourage George Bird Grinnell to promote the area for a national park. George Bird Grinnell is seen as kind of the grandfather of Glacier, responsible for developing the public and political support for a park here. So Louis just kind of came in on the tail end of it, uh, very much wanting it to happen, but didn't want to get his name out there with the idea that the feds would say, we're not going to do it because all you want it for is the money. He was so ready for it. Like he already had construction happening, the Belton Chalet, he already had these plans in motion. Oh, yes. And then on May 11th, 1910, this place got a new name, Glacier National Park. And soon after, the hotels came. It was becoming a destination. And right away, bingo, the Belton Chalet went in. In 1911, the park had a budget of $15,000, which even then was basically nothing. But the Great Northern Railway was ready to pick up the slack because they stood to make a profit. They spent over $90,000 in one year, six times the park's budget, and continued to outspend the park for the next decade. He was looking ahead. He was a far, mm-hmm. far-reaching far person. He had a vision. He followed every single thing of the construction from the beginning to the end, he was mm-hmm. involved in that and to make sure it, it was what he wanted. It's impossible to know what Glacier National Park would have become without the influence of Great Northern. The railway put Glacier on the map, building hotels, spinning yarns, and creating a mythology to draw people here, whatever the cost. Do you think you would have sat down for a portrait? Um, I don't know. That's a good one. So I don't think I would have at the time. I would have, might have been if I was along with my mother or my grandmother and they happened to be there. Yeah, maybe. Mm. You know, believe it or not, I think our people are still in a era of not distrust, but being careful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we still have that guard up. And the question arises, what are we being used for? Yes. It's almost like we're props. Like a lot of people come in here and they take pictures and whatever, and then they make calendars mm-hmm. and they go somewhere else, sell them. So it was a big thing. You know, they, they really utilized the Blackfeet Indian people to launch that tourism in Glacier National Park. The Blackfeet were used, I might even say exploited, to promote Glacier as a destination. The railway had their portraits painted then use those portraits on posters, calendars, playing cards, so many of their promotional souvenirs. And that's happened in our families. Uh, my daughter, when she was about four or five, we were camped over here at the campground, her and uh, my sister's daughter, they're close to the same age. Somebody peeped in our, our lodge and took a picture of them and we had just dressed them to go to dance. And Smokey's aunt found it in Glacier Park on sale and bought it and said, this is my relatives. And so Native people were, I guess, um, part of that history. Mm -hmm. So there's the good history, and there's the history that's the true history, and there's also the history that's from our perspective. (laughs) 
So this isn't, it sounds like this isn't the first time that you're seeing a lot of these pieces. Oh, no. Right. You've been seeing these since you were in... Since I was a kid. Since you know, and that, that was a big subject. Who was painted by Whittle Drees? The last two living uh, people were my mother and Floyd Middlerider. And my mother passed in 2020, so she was the last one. My mother's a great historian. Told us for years, I was one of the ones painted by Winald Reese. Well, none of us believed her. Oh, yeah, right, you know. And then it came came to be when I believe a book came out with Reese's prints in there, and they were inside the book. I said, okay, your mom, we believe you now. She said, yeah. And then she told us a story about getting those six silver dollars. She said, they didn't really mean, mean a hill of beans. She had a way of talking. Her, she had a language all her own. Rice was known for paying his models generously. In this case, giving six silver dollars to two little girls. Darnell, do you remember any more details of, of your mom and aunt being painted by him or other family members? Everything had to be perfect. Grandma said we had a lot of preparation to do. She said then when we were called to go greet the tourists, Getting off of the train. Getting off of the train, coming to East Glacier. Usually it was um, groups, but a lot of times it was special groups like dignitaries, presidents, um, people of prominent nature. There were people that came from all over the world would come to Glacier Park. And the ones that were the biggest advertisers were the, the Blackfeet people. My grandparents were part of that. It was Darnell's family who would greet visitors to the park when they got off the train. Her family was one of many who helped sell the romantic image of the park. Uh, they couldn't do uh, a lot of the things that we can do freely now. It's, a, it's a, a part of me that I've always had that I wasn't, shouldn't be in there because I didn't feel like I was welcome. Mm -hmm. Now we go up and bless the big hotel. We go up and, and welcome the tourists, not like my grandparents did, but almost on a similar basis. So the relationships have changed. A lot has changed. They say history repeats itself, but I've also heard something else, that it doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. I like that better. After walking this exhibit, like what kind of moves through you? How do you feel? It is a piece of history now. And when I was younger, I always thought, you know, time was so, so forever. Mm. Now it's short. Darnell is flipping through a binder with small prints of painted portraits. Some are her family, and many are decades old. Bright pastels of Blackfeet people, safely tucked into plastic sleeves. These portraits that I once saw as exploitative are something Darnell treasures. And this is my grandpa. That's Eagle Cow. This is one of the many portraits. Of, uh, I think Eagle Cat had four or five, mm. but he's on this calendar. He's he's the one gave me my Indian name. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Thank you. Bye. That was really special. I feel like they shared a lot with us. Maybe history can't repeat itself because it isn't something that's over. Not a loop starting back again, but something still present and happening now. A friend once described it as a medical affliction. And he said, once you're bitten by the glacier bug, there is no cure. 
So I'm not looking for a cure, and I'm having a hell of a lot of fun being infected. That's Ray, and he might be one of Glacier and Waterton's biggest, and if I may, nerdiest fans. I'm Ray Jeff. I'm a writer. My focus is on Waterton and Glacier International Peace Park, and I'm from Calgary. Why do you study history? I study history to know why. The questions have just kept coming. I learn a little bit, and I want to know a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that in pursuing this story. There is a connection between the Blackfeet and what was called the Buffalo Nickel, a coin that came out in 1913. And the connection was created by the Great Northern Railway as part of a publicity effort to get people's attention and have them come to Glacier Park. So the head of the Great Northern Railway at the time was Louis Hill. Louis Hill had just returned from the bank and gotten some change. He looks at his change and sees this new nickel and recognizes the similarity between the Native American on the coin and Two Guns White Calf, a Blackfeet man whom he had just met. Louis Hill sees the coin, writes to his publicity guy, Hoke Smith, and says, Would you please issue a press release thanking the American government for putting white calf on the buffalo nickel? Every single citizen in the U.S. has a nickel in his purse or in his pocket. So the advertising is there. All you have to do is get somebody to reach in, pull that nickel out for some candies or bubble gum or something, and you're looking at a promotion. It's phenomenal. Well, all of that was malarkey. There was no truth to any of it. The artist himself said he had never met two guns when he designed the coin. Unfortunately, he couldn't remember all of the people who had been the inspiration for the design of that Native American. To the Great Northern, it didn't matter who was actually on the nickel. It connected Glacier National Park and the Blackfeet to millions of people across the U.S. And this was only one piece of their promotional machine. Louis Hill had all the killer instincts for successful advertising, but he also hired quite the creative ad man named Hoke Smith. A man who could create something out of nothing. If you go into the railway station at Whitefish, you will see mounted on a plaque a trout that is covered in fur. He immediately thought of Iceberg Lake, and then he started to create a story. From here, the hiker, to whom Glacier Park is practically a mecca, can follow the foot and horseback trails to such popular objectives as Iceberg Lake. Iceberg Lake is so cold that the fish have to grow fur to keep warm. Usually frozen over solid into July, the lake actually is filled with miniature icebergs. And it is here that the legend of the fur-bearing trout was born. The myth of the fur-bearing trout is something that's now seen, heard, read, and shown in pictures and stories across the Rockies. But Hoke originated it. Louis Hill sold the idea that you could come to Glacier, see the Blackfeet, and experience that Old West. Louis Hill wanted them, no, to wear their traditional dress, to speak their language, to practice their culture, because all of that was important for drawing tourists to the park. In doing that, he was running counter to what the American government wanted. There's an Indian encampment nearby. We're on the edge of the great Blackfeet Reservation. And it's like turning back the pages of history to watch them sing and dance. 
also because you've got uh, people like Louis Hill having authors write their stories. You've got artists being paid to paint their portraits. The record for the Blackfeet is very extensive compared to some tribes in North America. And it was all unknowing. They hadn't intended it necessarily. They weren't trying to counter the government. They were doing this for their own purposes. Louis Hill wanted to show that this was the place to come see Native Americans before they all disappeared. Did he believe they were going to disappear? I don't know. On my first pass through this story, I thought it was a history of exploitation, a giant corporation using people as props to make money. But now, after turning the story over a few times, I still see exploitation, but I see something else as well. His efforts actually helped preserve Blackfeet culture. The Native America Speaks program in Glacier, I I almost see as a continuation of something that the Great Northern was doing, but in a a less colonial way. And you're getting a a new way of looking at the history of this park rather than through Euro-American eyes. What Louis Hill started was a multi-pronged effort to promote Glacier Park. And authors and artists were another part of the Great Northern Railway campaign. One of those artists was Vinold Rice. He was a German-American artist who was captivated by stories of Native Americans. He was definitely a part of the Great Northern's uh, advertising campaign. Rice was based in New York City and created famous portraits of important figures in the Harlem Renaissance. But he also spent a lot of time in the Blackfeet homelands on the eastern side of Glacier National Park. He first came to visit the Blackfeet Reservation in 1920, and he spent several months painting and building relationships with people he met. Louis Hill hires him, this is about 1927, and it starts a whole new advertising campaign that nobody had quite anticipated, but became incredibly successful. His portraits that hang at the Museum of the Plains Indian were used everywhere. For several decades, the Blackfeet became the face of Great Northern and of Glacier because of Rice's art. What makes... Vinald Rice's paintings really stand out is that they're colorful and they're detailed. Vinald Rice worked with pastels, and immediately you're going to get something that's denser and darker and can be brighter. Also, Vinald Rice really focused on the details. The clothing looks realistic. The hands and the faces look realistic. They're also large panels. They weren't small. When you saw a Venal Rice painting, you're drawn into it immediately. The person is as if they're standing right or sitting right in front of you. These are posed, yes, but there's a humanity about them. He would talk to them during the sittings. Some of these people became his friends. And Louis Hill immediately was enamored with these paintings. So much so that he bought everything Venal Rice did that first year. And would continue to buy most everything Vinald Rice produced over the next 20 years. In the end, Rice ended up creating more than 250 works of Native Americans. And he was more than an artist. He was a teacher. Many summers in the 1930s, artists from Europe and across North America came to the shores of St. Mary Lake to learn from him. Blackfeet artists trained alongside them, and they influenced Rice in turn. The exhibit features several pieces from these artists, including Victor Pepian, who went on to inspire his great-nephew, John Pepian. He is now a renowned pictographic artist and muralist 
whose work is also featured in the Museum of the Plains Indian. Going in through the back. Uh, hello. Are you Renee? Yes, I'm Renee. <laughs> I'm so Sorry. great to meet you. <laughs> I know, it's just like email, email. email. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we can start in here with the um, intro panel. We walk into the main gallery room, which has the intro panel and several of the portraits on display. They're big and colorful, and we all take a moment to admire them. If you had to describe Winold's work in like a sentence, how would you do that? He captured an awesome likeness. He captured the, the features of the person as well as their, um, I guess their, their, almost their thoughts. You realize that, oh, these are our people. While using very bright colors, mm -hmm. and I mean, these pieces are, are big. Mm -hmm. There's no paint, there's no acrylics, there aren't oils. It's all pastel work. Almost see the, 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 the ridges on the crayon or the ridges on the pencil. Yeah. 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 But his, his ability to capture a person's features is phenomenal. Winnold. Winnold. Darnell, so you, you described feeling some heavy emotion. Was, was this another piece that brought you some of that? Oh, yeah. White calf is very prominent, a very... Um, most recognizable black feet, because he's also the one on the buffalo nickel. But I remember him so distinctly. White Calf, the old, old man, was our neighbor. And he would come and he'd walk by us. And to see this original, it, it, brought, um, it, brought, it brought tears to my eyes. So Two Guns is important, very important to me. <laughs> this portrait of Two Guns White Calf stands out to me. The colors aren't as bright, but his gaze is powerful. He isn't looking off to the side or down like most people are in the paintings. He looks directly at me. Like looking He's looking down, directly at us. He's looking directly at us. And, and it, it makes feels, it more real. It makes it alive. It feels really, it, it just feels more intimate. It does. You feel that connection uh, through, a, through just a piece of art. Mm. So it is um, very powerful. Very, very powerful. White calf is, will always be very special to me. As the museum curator... Renee helped name this exhibit Connections. It's all about the links between these portraits and the present day. What do you want to connect? We're connecting the Great Northern Railway with Glacier National Park, Glacier National Park with um, Winnell Reese, Winnell Reese with the Blackfeet people, our Blackfeet people with their past. It's just a total connection. Mm -hmm. And um, everything so I th connects. everything connects. It, it gives me the chills when Renee says connections. That connection is strong, that connection is valuable. But when I ask her about the history of the portraits, she points out the relevance for future generations, too. That, so that's how we came up with that, that, the title Connections. Our people are always looking towards future generations. What can we do to set things up for future generations of our people? One of the best things that could have ever happened is bringing Little Reese portraits here. Home. Home. Yeah. Home. This is home. This yeah. is home. What I saw is a story looking backward full of loops and repetitions and rhymes, they see as a connection to the future. 
If it wasn't for these portraits, we wouldn't be able to sit here and tell you stories about them if they didn't happen. Recently, he came here. He came here to do, he was hired to do portraits. But when he got here, he became so close to our people, he was accepted as just one of our own. Up the road is Red Blanket Hill. And Red Blanket Hill is always kind of a spiritual place for our people. Okay, so when Reese um, passed away, he wanted to be cremated. My grandpa, great-grandpa George Bullchild took his ashes up to Red Blanket Hill and scattered them. They gave him an Indian name, and his ashes are here to prove that, that he was part of this, this world, our world. It's tough to pinpoint what exactly changes when a place becomes a destination. Who brings a new narrative and who writes it down? Who profits and who gets remembered? A destination brings people and cultures together. Publicists, painters, and people trying to make a living. Some find power, some find meaning, and some leave a legacy. After walking this exhibit, like what kind of moves through you? How do you feel? It is a piece of history now. And it's like turning back the pages of history to watch them sing and dance. Sing and dance. Dance. Sing and dance. And it's like turning back the pages of history to watch them sing and dance. Sing and dance. Dance. Headwaters is a production of Glacier National Park with support from our partner, the Glacier National Park Conservancy. This season of Headwaters was made by Daniel Lombardi, Perry Sassnett, Michael Faist, and Gabby Essaveri. Frank Wallen wrote and performed our music, and Eric Carlson created this season's cover art. Special thanks this episode to Darnell Rides at the Door, Renee Bear Medicine, and the Museum of the Plains Indian. Ray Jeff, Scott Tanner, Cookie Swang, and John Pepian. And of course, Bill Schustrom and all his gossip. This season depended on a lot of hard work from Darren Lewis and Lacey Kowalski. And we always depend on help and support from Melissa Slotik, Sierra Mandelko, Brent Rowley, and the whole Glacier National Park Archives team. And I also want to shout out the Conservancy's Virtual Book Club. We got a lot of great ideas from that. Thanks for listening. next time on Headwaters. For nearly 50 years, there were no wolves in Glacier National Park until one wolf bent the arc of history. One of the first, in a way, like cooperative, democratic processes on the ground is like, okay, we all have to work together to kill wolves. There's many parallels between wolves and humans in terms of the social structure. And sometimes I wonder if that, if that bothers people. That's next time on Headwaters. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Gabby. So we are so lucky here that Headwaters is supported by the Glacier National Park Conservancy. Yeah. But you guys do a lot of other work with the park, too. What are some examples? Another project we're funding right now is protecting glacier from emerging wildlife diseases. So that's work being done by park biologists that you're helping to fund. What diseases are we looking for? We're looking for a handful of diseases that have not yet been found in park wildlife, but we want to make sure we identify them right away if they do reach this area so we can take preventative measures. So what kind of diseases are we talking about? So one is the rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which affects uh, rabbits, but it also can affect pica because (gasps) 
they're lagomorphs. They're related to rabbits and hares. Uh, oh, no. So whenever a dead rabbit is found in the park, it's tested for rabbit hemorrhagic disease, though it has not been detected yet in Glacier. They're also looking for avian influenza and chronic wasting disease, which affects ungulates, uh, our deer and elk populations. And chronic wasting disease has been detected very close, within 20 miles of Glacier National Park. So now when we find dead deer, they actually will cut out the lymph nodes and send them to a lab to be tested uh, because that's the only way to determine if a deer has chronic wasting disease. Wow, this sounds really important. Yeah, it's it's not the sexiest project, but it's so important for keeping our wildlife safe. Absolutely. So if people want to learn more about this project or about the Glacier National Park Conservancy, where can they go? They can check out our website. Just type in glacier.org and, and you'll be there. Have you stayed at the chalets? I did stay in the Prince of Wales. My wife and I stayed there one night. How yeah. was that? Uh, oh, it was elegant. It was all a bunch of high rollers from Kalispell. So they said, well, what are all the poor people doing today? And I looked at my wife and she looked at me. We said, here we are, baby. 